We have um, girls like Suma in Nepal who was sold into indentured servitude and ultimately um, went through our program, ends up on a stage with Hillary Clinton talking about the importance of women and girls. I can't think of a better investment frankly, um, than in a young girl who is looking to, to better her own life and that of her family and community. From Qualtrics Industries, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall. Today on the show, how Geetha Morali is combining her gifts for mathematical rigor with her love for building relationships to build Room to Read into an organization creating a world free from illiteracy and gender inequality by educating and empowering 40 million children, their families, and their communities. I am here with Gita Morali. Gita, it's fantastic to have you here. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's a privilege to be here, Jesse, and spend some more time together. I have respected your perspectives on so many topics over the years, so lovely to continue our conversations. Well, thank you. I have to admit that I have had this date circled on my calendar for a long time. In some ways, the conversation's been a long time coming for me, and in other ways, it's been ongoing, as you implied, for many years. If you could just start us off by making sure everybody's on common ground. You're the CEO of an outstanding organization called Room to Read. Please tell us about it. Room to Read is an organization focused on creating a world free from illiteracy and gender inequality. And we do that through education. We have a staff of 1,687% working directly with schools in the countries where we work. And this is our 20th anniversary year. And uh, by the end of this year, we'll have benefited 20 million children across 16 countries through our programs. And we have an ambitious goal of reaching 40 million children by 2025. I should say we have uh, two major areas of focus. One is our literacy portfolio, where we support children to become independent readers and lifelong learners. We coach teachers and create quality books. We establish libraries in local languages that can be enjoyed at school or at home. And we partner with local communities and governments and the publishing industry to test and implement models and make sure children can succeed in school and develop a love of reading. Uh, our other focus area is our girls' education and gender equality work, where we work with girls to build the skills that they need to succeed in school and make key life decisions. We prepare girls to make positive change by, by providing them with life skills training and opportunities for mentorship, uh, peer support. We work with their families and communities on the day-to-day -day challenges that girls face in the communities that we serve. But our work goes even further just by supporting young people of all genders to build knowledge and skills that they need to create a gender equal world. So much important work, so much innovation, and so much ingenuity has gone into building the organization. We will get to all of that. I want to start, Gita, if I may, at the start, at your start, to be specific. Tell me about the place, or I should probably say places, where you grew up in your early years. There's quite a mix of the where and the how, I think. 
Yeah, I was born in New York City and grew up across many locations on the East Coast of the United States, as well as in India. I uh, had a small stint in Spring, Texas along the way, which was probably the only time in my life where I felt a, a deep disconnect with my surroundings being just one of only two people of color in the school. But for the most part, uh, I moved around quite a lot when I was young, and I think it made me quite adaptable to change and able to build new relationships quickly, which is something that I've taken with me through my entire life. And your mom, I think, had a deep background in math and statistics, and her analytical acumen, as well as her focus on learning, on education, were really influential for you early on, yeah? Yeah, and mom, mom was fighting her own demons most of her life. She she came from a family where child marriage was pretty common. Um, she was pressured to get married at 13 and refused, left home, joined the Indian Army to train as a nurse, and came to the United States. Um, and, and she viewed that transition, that move to the U.S. as her ticket to freedom and choice. She married later in life. She had me later than was expected, uh, put herself through school, ultimately getting her doctorate and having a very successful career as a statistician. Um, but I think with all of her success came that awareness that uh, education for a girl changes everything. So she definitely made me feel a sense of urgency uh, to get educated. She made me feel like the train of life would somehow leave the station if I didn't get as much of an education as possible as soon as I possibly could. So I collected more degrees than I probably needed, but along the way acquired um, many valuable skills. I, I don't think I fully appreciated the value of those skills till much later in life. And what did the role of reading in particular uh, look like for you? I mean, obviously, you became the CEO of Room to Read. You talk about combating illiteracy, specifically in your younger years about reading. What are your recollections? Yeah, reading was a central part of my life as a child, from comic books to detective novels to uh, spiritual texts. I was exposed to so much, and I was fortunate. I had the space to learn, to debate, to question. I was the only child of older parents, one a statistician and the other a businessman slash spiritual seeker, as I called my father's. Um, from their perspectives, as long as I kept learning and ultimately became self-sufficient, they were happy. So they, they let me read as many books as I wanted and imagine my life on the pages of those books. And tell me about the skills. So you referenced doing different things, building different skills. What were some of the things that you built up um, in your skill sets early on and in your kind of asset bases intellectually, cognitively, emotionally, as you went through the early stages of your career and, and uh, move forward from there? Yeah, I think at the time, I, I didn't even realize that they were skills that would help me in life. You know, I was definitely in a place where I was trying to absorb as much as possible, learn as much as possible. So initially, I learned uh, mostly mathematical skills. I was uh, reciting my multiplication tables when I was like three years old. And I guess that's what happens when you're raised by a statistician. Um, and and over time, you know, I went all the way through my undergraduate uh, and and got a degree in biostatistics. Started working in pharma, big pharma, helping to support uh, clinical trials, and and got my master's in, in biostats as well. So I was very comfortable in the quantitative um, 
space, you know, and sort of that was the majority of the work that I was doing. Uh, I always say that my father being a businessman and sort of a spiritual seeker, as, as I called him, gave me a whole different skill set around uh, building relationships, um, a certain sense of inquiry and and warmth in relationships that I think balanced out the, the quantitative side. So while I didn't know their value at the time, um, they really did round me out as a person and continue to be important today as I run a $60 million uh, nonprofit with entities all over the world. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think there are a lot of people who are planning for the next role or the next job, and they love the skills they're building, but they might not necessarily know if and when it's going to take them to that place they might ultimately want to be in terms of a role in their careers. And it sounds like from your perspective, that's okay, that there's a little bit of destiny interrelated with career planning, if I have it right in terms of how you thought about it. Absolutely. I think that um, planning too far ahead can sometimes make you lose sight of opportunities right in front of you. There are careers and career opportunities that are um, emerging every day that you may not even be um, aware of. And so it's important to, especially early in your career, to develop as many skills as you can that um, hopefully one are interesting to you and, and help you feel a sense of, of pride and achievement, but that can also be marketable and can help contribute to, to different types of organizations and sectors. Um, so I think that was definitely a uh, uh, important part of my trajectory, you know, acquiring these skills, testing them out in different environments. I, you know, looked at academia as an option. I looked at nonprofit as an option. I did startups. Um, so you, you use a lot of your skill sets in a lot of different environments. And I do really believe that if you are good, the organization can't ignore you. And there's this great book by Cal Newport that I recommend to a lot of my staff, you know, so good they can't ignore you because it has really been a reflection of the way I've lived my life. And, um, you know, those skills helped me achieve and ultimately get recognized uh, as a strong contributor to the organizations I worked in. Yeah. And so you worked in organizations like Pharma, as you mentioned, you uh, spent some time, I think, at Glaxo, University of California. You're picking up some ostensible skills and things like research and business case building and, and grant writing in addition to developing relationships and after some time, as I understand it, you get introduced to an organization called the America India Foundation. And it's notable, I think, who introduced you to that organization. So can you talk about the foundation and who and what galvanized you to take a role there? I was working in big pharma. I had come to the realization that I didn't see myself working in pharmaceuticals and sort of doing clinical trials work for the next 30 to 40 years of my life. But I didn't quite know what my options were. And I uh, ended up studying for a bit at Berkeley using statistics and the social sciences. Um, but interestingly, I was working with a statistician at the time who would eventually marry one of the co-founders of Room to Read, Aaron Ganju. And I had spoken to Aaron um, as I was considering a transition from the for-profit world to something else, not quite knowing yet what that something else was. And um, Room to Read was quite small. And she had just received funding to expand into India from an organization called the American India Foundation. And so she said, you know, they might be an organization worth checking out. 
And so I did. And during that period, I did all sorts of things. I ran events, I raised funds, I built corporate partnerships, uh, worked with their program teams to expand their geographic reach. I learned a lot and I was just entering the nonprofit sector. So I had a lot to learn before I could make the long-term decision to make a switch in terms of uh, my life path. So you stay in touch with Aaron Ganju. You join Room to Read. It's April of 2009, I think, when you join. We're in the midst of a huge recession. In some ways, it couldn't have been a very easy time to join an organization that at that time had an ambition of educating four or five million children worldwide. So what was it that compelled you to join at that particular time? So I had spent, you know, this few years at the American Indian Foundation getting a strong foundation in how nonprofits run, but I wasn't quite sure that I could make a career out of working in this field. And I tried a number of things. I you know, helped uh, launch a startup as part of their founding team. I taught at Mills College, thinking about whether academia was the right path. I couldn't quite see if my ambitions to make a global impact could be met uh, by an organization in the social sector. And um, as I kept checking back with Room to Read, it was doubling in size every year. It was evolving as an organization. And ultimately, they were looking to launch a corporate partnership team to build large corporate partnerships and help the organization diversify its private funding base. And it was the perfect opportunity for me. It used heavy quantitative skills, revenue modeling, um, as well as the relationship side of things, building strong partnerships with people all over the world. And so it was the perfect fit for me. I made the jump and uh, have never looked back. Yeah. And and you talk a lot about, um, Keith, the, the difference between being an ER doctor uh, and being a treasure hunter. Can you explain for folks listening what that means and how you have kind of applied it, maybe in the context of that decision, but in general, in the course of your career arc and the calls you've made about where to put your time and energy? I look back at my life in phases. And I I do think that is one thing that's important for people to do. You're just not the same person throughout your entire life. And definitely throughout different phases in your career, you show up differently. And if I look back now at the beginning of my career, a lot of what I was doing was very achievement-oriented. I was Uh, acquiring skills. I was setting goals. I was meeting those goals. Then I set the next goal. And um, joy for me was really achieving the goal. Um, And as I progressed through my career and I achieved more and more goals and ultimately achieved success in in the social sector, really running an organization and, and becoming a CEO, I did have to reflect a little bit about you know, how I'm going to show up uh, at at Room to Read going forward, particularly as the first non-founder CEO of the organization uh, with a responsibility of establishing the organization as a global brand and accelerating its impact uh, to double the number of children that we're reaching over the next few years. Huge responsibility. So in reflecting on that, uh, I did have to look at whether just goal setting and achievement was enough. And for me, it it wasn't. And I had to, to really reflect on, on my own personal health and how I could balance all of the things that were important to me. And 
how to prioritize my time such that I could bring the best of myself to the organization. So I really do describe that as treasure hunting, not just in my professional life, but to some extent in my personal life as well. And Gita, in connection with the treasure hunting idea, how do you think about and articulate the values or the sense of purpose that is distinctive to you? Uh, And to what extent have you been able to use that as kind of a compass as you have made decisions in your career? After this year with just the challenges of the pandemic, the challenges with my personal um, situation, my own health, I did have to reflect on what was most important to me and how I was going to prioritize my time and the things that I took on going forward, both personally and professionally. And so I revisited the things that were important to me and um, reaffirmed my sense of my own values. And just to, to walk you through that a little bit, there's a bit of a spectrum from sort of me as the individual to ultimately um, what I hope is, is my life goal. But as an individual, you know, joy is uh, central. And I don't mean joy is just sort of being happy, but really having the courage to, to do and to, to pursue things that fulfill me. Um, if I add another person into the equation, we talked a little bit about relationships, the value of presence, right? Making a commitment to be compassionate, not just for myself, but for others. And that opens me up, I think, to continuous learning and, and meaningful action. Um, the third value perhaps reflects more through the way that I run my organization, and that's integrity, a sense of carrying out actions that are built on a foundation of ethics and transparency, even when nobody is looking. And I think that is critical for for running an organization um, like ours. The the next one is really how I show up in the world, uh, a sense of justice, doing my part to create an equitable world because it is just the right thing to do. And if I kind of look at those four ultimately what I'm looking to achieve. And none of us really knows if this is truly possible, but it's serenity, right? Viewing life through a lens of optimism so that you can get beyond the daily cycles of, of pleasure and pain and somehow connect to a state of, of permanent peace. And Geetha, those of us that are close to Room to Read have kind of our beliefs about what the greatest hits are that make the organization able to build breakthroughs. Obviously, there's the ethos of the founders, There's the in-region co-investment model. There's dedicated in-country local leadership, simplicity in the storytelling to investors around metrics and impact. There's so much more that are best practices in nonprofit and in some ways were invented by Room to Read. But what do you personally think is the secret sauce of the Room to Read model? Room to Read's secret sauce is that our delivery matches our ambition. And what I mean by that is we just don't, we don't just talk. We don't just write white papers. We are implementers at our core. We deliver programs. Uh, Most of our staff is in the field, in the schools, working directly with communities. So we learn quickly. We course correct. We do it again. Um, We know what we're good at doing and we make sure we do as much of that good as possible. It's a commitment to action. And I think that's ultimately what's driven this organization forward and has made us a global brand. And how would you frame your secret sauce within that? What do you believe it is about you that when John Wood and and Aaron, being the two co-founders and the board, were considering 
Who's going to be the first ever non-founding CEO of Room to Read? What do you think was the thing that must have persuaded them to choose you? If you ask what my secret sauce is, I believe 100% my relationships. The, the people I've been fortunate enough to meet, to work with, to laugh and play with. I have been exposed to uh, a range of life experiences and perspectives, a range of hardships and opportunities. And I do believe that in the process, I have learned to appreciate the inherent and immeasurable value of the human spirit. I have been enriched by so many people from so many parts of my life. And I think it is that recognition that that is my secret sauce, the recognition that every person can enrich my work and my life and the value that I place on that belief. Uh, and I hope it manifests in how I treat people because I do ask a lot of people to trust me and the work that Roomtree does and uh, the authenticity, the trust. And I have seen the extremes people will go to if they believe in you and they believe in what you stand for. Uh, I don't take the faith people put in me lightly. In the work I do, I, I have experienced the incredible depths of the human heart and, and kindness. And I do believe that those who uh, stand by our mission, they stay with us through the highs and the lows. They let us lean on them. They see the number of children that, that we're collectively benefiting as their collective achievement. And I, I think that recognition, it, it invokes in me the type of gratitude that that I can't put into words. And so, Geetha, I'm, I'm well aware of the organization's ambition, and, and you started to frame it at the beginning, but 2025 strategic plan, expanding from 16 to 26 countries to publish books in five more languages, so to get to 35 languages, impacting 40 million children worldwide. Anytime an organization has this type of ambition, there's a bit of what got you to now may not get you to next. And so in that spirit, I'm wondering if you could reflect on what are the muscles, the new muscles that you believe Room to Read has to build to get to its desired impact in those next four to five years? Room to Read had to, in its early years, demonstrate its ability to deliver, right? We had to show that the work we were doing with schools and with children, that that work would actually change their learning outcomes or their life outcomes. And as we started approaching maturity in our programming and we saw that we were getting the results we were, we had to ask ourselves, can we do this indefinitely? Is it just about adding additional schools or additional girls every year? Or can we be even more ambitious? Can we be bold and say that we have solutions to this problem. And we made the decision that that was what we were going to do as a leadership team. We put our brand out there and stood by our results. We started working with governments and helping them understand the way we work so they would buy into our model. We changed the way that we talked to press about our results and really started uh, releasing our reports more actively. And we achieved a level of recognition that I'm very proud of because it, it speaks to the heart of what we do. When you have literacy experts like Louise Crouch, who basically put reading on the development agenda, um, joining our board and saying what Room to Read does and the way we deliver our programs is right, 
um, when you have the likes of Michelle Obama visiting our work as sort of a model of girls' education, you know, it those types of recognition really put Room to Read on the map on a global stage. But more importantly, it validated for our teams that the way that we approach this work is the right way to do it. And with that validation, we can now look at the next phase where our focus is on managing scale and large-scale partnerships, on the technical capacity needed to make sure our programs are relevant in all settings where children need access to literacy and gender equality programming. And I think the overarching one, which comes with building a large team, you know, 1,600 staff, and that is the leadership and the management capacity of the organization, making sure that decisions are made at the right level, that um, ideas can come from any part of the organization to make us better. And so this is what I think so many people who are trying to build breakthroughs that happen at first incrementally and then must occur monumentally need to try to understand that this is now talking about the difference between episodic change and systemic change. How do you shift the way that governments operate? How do you shift the way that elected officials make decisions? How do you move capital flows over the course of half a decade? What worries you about the ability to kind of move forward against the vision? And is it in execution? Um, Is it in prioritization? Where do you see it? For us to be successful requires that all global stakeholders involved in education continue to keep literacy and gender equality at the top of the agenda. And I do think that it's pretty easy, you know, during this time that we live in where there's already so much divisiveness and displacement um, all over the world to lose sight that we had a learning crisis even before this pandemic. So having 1.5 billion children affected by the pandemic it just exacerbates an already existing issue. So in terms of what keeps me nervous is the worry that somehow we'll lose sight of the importance of something as simple as basic reading skills and the impact that it has on ensuring that a child can develop into a fully fulfilled citizen And not even just a citizen, even in systems where we don't have established government systems, you have refugee populations and informal systems that are struggling to just get a basic education, right? To overcome the barriers of poverty and make it to school. And if we lose sight of that, and if we just tell ourselves, oh, it's just a matter of a few months while the pandemic is ongoing, we can lose an entire generation. Because all it takes is a few months of not learning how to read and not being able to read by the time you finish third grade, and you lose the chance to become everything that you may have wanted to be as a child. So we can't take that lightly. And that's ultimately what keeps me up at night, um, making sure that these issues stay at the top of the agenda. Angita, can you talk a little bit more about the ripple effect of an inadequate or an absent education on a young girl, just to make sure that the point is really brought home for everybody listening. Um, Just how do you see the case for education? And you talk about world 
change begins with educated children, and in particular, young women. Tell us about how Room to Read frames and how you personally have experienced uh, the impact of educating one young person, and in particular one girl, and the attendant positive ripple effects that has. So I absolutely am a standing example of that exact scenario, right? Uh, One woman, my mother, makes a decision not to get married at the age of 13 and instead sets off uh, to change not just her own life, but invest back in the lives of her sisters and their education such that our entire family is in a completely different situation right now with the majority of my generation being girls, um, having chosen their own destinies, everything from doctors to engineers to me in this role. So uh, I've lived that experience. So I don't take it lightly when I see similar transformations in the lives of many of the children that we serve. We have seen girl after girl make it through our program and not only give back to herself but and invest in herself, but to do so in her own family, in her own community. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Kamla, who's one of the girls uh, who went through our girls' education program in India. Now, as a young woman, um, received a Gandhi Fellowship and is also working in the social sector. She came to London and um, spoke at our London Gala about the transformation that it's had on her own life. We have um, girls like Suma in Nepal who was sold into indentured servitude and ultimately um, went through our program, ends up on a stage with Hillary Clinton talking about the importance of women and girls. Um, you know, the, the transformations happen within a single generation and they are sustainable for multiple generations to come. I can't think of a better investment, frankly, um, than in a young girl who is looking to, to better her own life and that of her family and community. So I want to bring it close to home and everyone's home. Uh, And I want to do that by reading a passage from something you wrote. In an increasingly fragmented world, it's natural to wonder if anything remains to galvanize our unity. Divisive politics, trade wars, distrust of foreign governments and the like polarize us as individuals and communities. How do we see another side, another person, or another experience as clearly as we see our own? And then you go on to cite research that says, Books, notably fiction, have the capacity to make us better people, contributing positively to our ability to recognize that others have beliefs, desires, and intentions that are different from our own. With that in mind, imagine the power literature has to force us to wrestle with a new truth or alternative view. You didn't write that last week. (laughs) That was over two years ago, but it could have been last week. And so I ask you in the practical spirit of Room to Read, what's one thing that you implore people to do to develop empathy for one another's experiences in this time? Well, reading books, it can serve as both mirrors and windows, right? Mirrors in the way that you see yourself on the the pages that you read and windows in that you get this experience where, where you see perhaps perspectives that you never saw before and you couldn't necessarily live in your own day-to-day experience. So reading 
of course, has this incredible ability to, to help you develop empathy. But if you ask what is the one thing you can do is be aware that there are perspectives other than your own and use every channel available to you to learn about those perspectives. Because ultimately, it's it's in that learning, that ongoing learning and, and evolution as a human being that you do find the depths of of your own spirit and your ability to share um, your own experiences with others and learn from their experiences to make you better. And ultimately, I think that's what we're all hoping to do as human beings is, is to just be better. Geetha, if someone is interested in exploring careers in the public sector broadly, in the nonprofit space, is it accurate to think in terms of a public sector opportunity as contrasted to a private sector opportunity? Is that even a divide that makes sense? What are the organizing principles that people should think about if there's even an inkling that doing something like what you're doing could be an attractive path? People have so much opportunity to have a social impact these days in a way that I don't even think was possible a decade ago. I I do think that we were thinking about careers much more in the for-profit or non-profit binary um, a decade ago. Now you have a whole spectrum, right, from traditional nonprofits through to nonprofits that are earning incomes to hybrid models to uh, for-profits with social missions to traditional for-profits. I mean, you have a whole range. And even within traditional for-profits, you are um, seeing so much happening in the space of corporate social responsibility in terms of the ways that people are influencing social messages through their advertising. I mean, there's so many things you can do to have a social impact in that space. So I don't think it's a binary anymore. So it is important before you make any kind of change that you educate yourself and and think about, is there a particular mission that motivates you? Um, Because working in this space with difficult global challenges does entail some sacrifices. Uh, It could be anything as simple as salary, or it could be the emotional or mental strain that... um, that you have to go through by just dealing with very difficult issues and facing some of the most challenging parts of humanity. So thinking about what is drawing you to work for an organization that has a social impact, what is motivating you to do so, it's important that you see yourself tied to the mission. You know, I always tell people your purpose and your practice have to intersect um, in in this space. So seeking that alignment is important. And thinking about whether you do need to make a change from the organization that you're in in order to achieve that, or if you can find a space within um, the work that you're doing that allows for a social impact. And have you found in the course of your time at Room to Read, Gita, that there is a correlation between people who have some important, significant life experience, perhaps at a young age, around literacy, around learning, around reading, around education, between people who have had that experience and their happiness and their continued contributions to Room to Read? Or or do you get just as many people affiliated with the organization who have some other on-ramp or other kind of link to the mission? You see a whole range of entry points to an organization like Room to Read. I definitely think that at our foundation, our, um, our individuals who 
have either been motivated by books sometime in their life. Um, their education has played a role. They've faced some sorts of um, incredible barriers to their own educations. But you also see people who have um, had a lot of opportunity growing up and have, for whatever reason, been exposed either through their travels or their own educational experiences to communities that um, didn't have those opportunities and were just appalled by the injustice of it all. So you do see a lot of different entry points into the organization. You also see people who have the functional skill sets, right? I think of people on our accounting teams and um, you know some of the the technology professionals that we work with who started their careers with functional skill sets and um, you know were able to find great success in the for-profit world, but ultimately wanted something that felt more meaningful and made them feel more fulfilled and and sought out organizations that could accommodate their skill sets. But I think in the end, the most successful staff, the ones that stay with us the longest and continue to contribute, um, are are those that do believe in the core that the mission that Room to Read works towards is fundamental to world change. Geetha, in the spirit of relationships and you mentioning that as your secret sauce, you have met some really incredible people over the years and helped them build relationships into Room to Read. Uh, there are incredible builders that you have gotten to know and introduced the organization to. And I'm talking about people that everyone would recognize, the likes of, uh, you mentioned Hillary Clinton, but Julia Roberts, Michelle Obama, Bill and Melinda Gates. I could go on. Um, who is one person you have not yet met that you absolutely want to meet in your role? This is a hard question because... It isn't just one. And this, I guess my answer goes back to this theme of, of treasure hunting. I have been incredibly fortunate to meet some influential people all over the world who are shaping the trajectories of the way the, the world will work in, in the next generation. Um, so I, I'm now at this point in my career where I find the most fulfillment from meeting children who have made it through our programs and are now giving back in their own way, um, either to their own families or communities or the world. You know, I, we just recently um, heard uh, this story out of Nepal. Um, Dr. Sanjay, who went through our literacy program in Nepal and is now a doctor on the front lines of the pandemic. Uh, I mentioned to you Kamla, who staged a hunger strike against early marriage uh, so her parents wouldn't marry her off and is now giving back in her own way. We had a student I know in Tanzania, Rahima, who wanted to be president. I mean, if I could spend my time just meeting the children and now young adults um, who have come out of our program and will shape the futures of their communities, that would be... They, those would be my treasures. I mean, they are our treasures. They're they're the embodiment of world change, and and they inspire me more than I think anyone else could. Well, it certainly is a reflection for some of us in tech who talk about customer lifetime value. You're really talking about a value that you can't quantify. Uh, as much as you've done metrics and statistics in your life, um, Gita. My last question for you 
today is for the builders listening here, if they wanted to know what the most important piece of advice they should take from you, given the world as you've seen it, the world as you've experienced it, and the world as you've helped build it, what would that advice be? I I just don't think that as individuals, we're able to fully grasp what we're capable of, especially early in our lives. Um, we we don't we don't know enough about our capabilities. We haven't experienced enough. We haven't met enough people to fully be aware of the extent to which we can impact the world. And so, I guess my piece of advice would just be that once you think you are at your limit in terms of of what you can do and what you can achieve and what you can challenge yourself to do in your next phase, push yourself just a little bit further because you probably have further to go. Geetha, thank you. Um, It has been a pleasure and an honor. I appreciate your time, your energy, your wisdom, and your candor. I'm better for it and literally tens of millions of people around the world are better for it too. So thank you once again. Thanks, Jesse. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Wow, that was just an incredible dialogue with Gita. She's so resolute. She's got such a clear sense of purpose and values. She executes like crazy and she gets people to really buy into a vision that's so much bigger than any one person or organization. When she talked about relationships being her secret sauce, I was not surprised at all. She's magnetic. She really inspires people to be their best selves and constantly learn and grow. Awesome leader, awesome human being. Now, one of the things we're going to do after every one of these shows, since you all out there are breakthrough builders, is to lay out some building blocks. A building block is an action that I want you to take that's inspired by what our guests on the show has shared. It's a way of taking some core element of the conversation and making it work for you. In this episode, Gita talked to us about skills and the importance of building skills early in your life, early in our careers. And she talked about how it's not about doing it because we know exactly what we want to be when we grow up. We do it so we can open doors for ourselves. For Gita, those skills she built early in her career and all throughout her career in math and stats and relationship building turned out to open the door at Room to Read. She walked through that door, and in return, the world has gotten a decade of incredible impact through improved educational outcomes for children, their families, and their communities. For this week's building block, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to think about a two-step of skills that combine to form a secret sauce for you. Step one, the hard skills, like tools of the trade. And step two, soft skills, like the things you can apply in any context or situation. For Gita, her hard skills are in mathematical fluency and her soft skills are around relationship building. What's your one-two step that gives you your secret sauce? Maybe you're the kind of person whose hard skill is you can write incredibly well and your soft skill is you're great at reading people. So your secret sauce combines those things and you're an incredible writer. Or maybe it's a two-step of being an unbelievable code writer and being incredibly patient. And those combine to make you an unbelievable technical teammate. Whatever your two-step and your secret sauce are, write them down and think about what kinds of things you could go do with that combo that's unique to you. I bet you're already doing some unbelievable things as a result, but maybe there's some untapped magic that this exercise can help you unlock in your quest to become an ever better builder. All right, until next time, take care, Breakthrough Builders, and be well. 
Thanks so much for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other listeners find us. And please, tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a production of the Industries team at Qualtrics. The show is written and hosted by me, Jesse Pierwall. Mastering by Nate Crenshaw. Post-production and music by Clean Cuts Audio, part of the Three C's Collective. Design by Baron Santiago and Bensuka Shindavijak. Website by Gregory Haydon. And photography by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Jeremy Smith, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundin.